Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, good morning, beloved sisters and brothers. I welcome you into this uh, third part of our ongoing series entitled In the Beginning. And I want to, at this moment, welcome the rest of our church family worshiping with us in the Family Life Center. And I want to invite all of us to turn in our Bibles at this time to the book of Genesis. We will find our way to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. I hope that you have been uh, doing your homework. Each week, you know, we have uh, signed readings. Uh, and each week, I try to remind you what those are. We're working our way through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, bringing to conclusion a kind of chapter-by-chapter chapter analysis of the book of Genesis that began last year in some form and, and fashion. Uh, but each week, we read the same chapters. So this next week... Uh, you know, the first three weeks of this study, we have been reading chapters one and two. So next week, we read chapter two. So next week, that, re that means starting tomorrow and the next day and the next, each day of this week, I want you to immerse yourselves in the imagery, in the language, in the movement, in the mood of, of the entire chapter as we find our way to that part entitled Garden. But for today, it's image, and we are in chapter 1, verse 26. Before we read the passage of Scripture for our study today, however, I want us to talk just as a family uh, for just a moment. Many of you uh, in our church community, our family, we, we receive or you receive uh, email communications from us when we have various prayer needs come across and we share some of those churchwide. And if you are receiving those, those uh, communication services, then you, uh, you are aware of um, the loss that our church has experienced in the recent uh, day. Um, Carolyn Self has uh, gone to be with the Lord. And for some of you, that may be new information. For some, it may not. Uh, some of you uh, may be new to our community, and, and perhaps you, you never had the honor of meeting Bill and Carolyn Self. Uh, but uh, Carolyn and Bill served this church uh, very well uh, for 21 years or more. In fact, Bill was, if you're new to our community, Bill uh, was our founding pastor at JCBC. Uh, but I'm here to tell you, uh, as much as we love and revere and respect the life and legacy of Bill Self, Regardless of what it is that you know about any pastor anywhere, you don't know the half of it until you know the spouse. And I'm here to tell you that, um, that while this church continues to be blessed by the ministry and the love and the leadership of Bill Self, it is also uh, the recipient of some deep love that Carolyn poured into uh, you, into the relationships we have here in this church, and into the building of this community of faith for a long time. 
Last week, she had um, a medical condition. She had to be seen uh, and found out um, very late in the week uh, the result, which was that she had a very progressed metastasized cancer in her abdomen. And last night, uh, she died. And uh, today, we pray for the self family. In just a moment, when we lift up a word of prayer, I want us to say thanks for the life and the love that that couple, Bill and Carolyn, poured into this place. But I also want us to lift up um, their, their family, um, Brian and Karen and their sons, and, and we'll hold them up in a moment of solidarity and prayer, uh, recognizing the impact that they have brought to our continued life as a congregation. For now, um, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to these verses that we will study today, and then we pray. From Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable, and it can be trusted. Let's take a moment and offer a word of prayer as we begin. God, we gather and worship every week with the recognition, uh, maybe even the confession, that our worship is not authentic unless we bring everything before you, both that which we celebrate and that which causes us to groan, the, those moments of anguish and suffering and loss. And we bring all of that to you today. And all who have gathered on this campus and all who are watching, uh, tuning in online, we, we each and we all have burdens that we bring before you. And we give thanks for those moments in which we have clearly seen your hand traced in the grace of our lives. But we also, in this moment, simultaneously bring to you our pain and our sorrow and our grief, our struggle, even our doubts. We bring it to you. Today we are grateful, uh, so very grateful for, for the life of Carolyn Self. We're so thankful to you for the way in which you gifted this community of faith with, with she and Bill for so many years. We pray for their family now as they rally around one another and as we rally around them to honor her life later in the coming days and to ponder anew what it means for each of us to live a life in which we pour out into others the way so many like the selves have poured out into, into people. We pray in this moment of study that you would take uh, the scripture that we have opened up and speak in a way to the heart that allows us to hear more than just words on a page, but speak in a way that transforms our living because of what we hear. We offer this time before you now as an expression of our love and our worship. 
be worshiped now in our study. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So today is the third part in our ongoing series, In the Beginning. Today we focus on image, being created in the image of God. And I'll remind you that thus far we have been saying that these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which are the focal points of our study, well, these make up a different kind of Bible. The first 11 chapters of your Bible, well, it's different Bible than the rest of the Bible. In fact, it's not attempting to be a history book. It's not attempting to be a science book. It's unapologetically attempting to be a book of faith, of theology, of belief, in which we hear, uh, we hear poetry and narrative. We see images and we're stoked and provoked in the imagination of our own faith to consider a kind of God who would create in the way that we've been reading. And what's God up to, this kind of God who creates in the way that these these passages reveal that God creates? What's, What's God's motive and what is God's expectation from the creatures whom God has created? So these many weeks, we're talking about these passages, but we cannot forget where they come from. We cannot forget that these passages emerge out of what we believe is the the late 6th century B.C., a time of exile, when the people of Israel had lived through a a cataclysmic event in their, well, in their people's history. The temple had been sacked, destroyed, destroyed, the very center of everything that ever mattered had now been dismantled. It had been destroyed. Everything that held together their social, theological, political world was now uh, falling apart. It had unraveled. And now in exile, in despair, they begin to tell the old stories. And the rabbis begin to preach good sermons The theologians begin to do their work. The priests begin to order worship. And they begin to tell, hmm, not simply a commentary on the way things are, but they begin to speak of faith in terms of the way things are meant to be. And they'll tell stories about a God who, in the midst of chaos, brings order. A God who is deliberate about bringing beauty out of brokenness. And they tell these stories and ultimately they become a part of the first section of our Bible. And today we look closely at one particular place. Always remembering to try to hear this through the ears of exiles. But we come to verse 26 and 27, the creation of humankind. And we begin this study of the creation of humankind in a curious place. You ready? We start with augmented reality. Didn't see that one coming, did you? (laughs) Augmented reality. Can I lay a foundation? Can I set the table? Can I just spread before us? the feast before we dig in. Can I tell you what augmented reality is? In fact, my guess is a good number of people um, 
under the age of 18 in the other room know exactly what augmented reality is. Can I just tell you what it is? It's a technology that allows you to look through, well, a device. And in looking through that device, I may see this plant or this stand or those candles, and I may see it, but augmented reality is, well, you, there's an app in which it lays a layer of imagery, a filter upon it, in which no matter what it is you're looking at through this device, uh, there's a layer of technology that allows you to see more than what is really there. Uh, so I was having some fun in my office today. Can I show you what it looks like? One of the easiest examples is Snapchat. Snapchat has these filters, see? Yeah. And in case you're feeling in love or a little goofy, you can put these filters upon you, and what you see is one thing. And if you're in the doghouse, that's another. But what you see is one thing, but you can choose a filter that layers on top of what you see so that you are looking at more than meets the eye. I mean, another silly and simple example is, do you remember the Pokemon Go fad, the, the phase where you would walk through or go see kids standing on the corner or walking through the park looking at their devices like they're zombies, you know? It's because what they see is not only what the phone is revealing, but also an image that's superimposed upon it. It's augmented reality. It's reality that's supplemented with something more, another layer. And I'm here to tell you that these ancient texts, these texts that we are studying, and specifically chapter 1, is an ancient version of augmented reality. Because these exiles who are suffering and struggling and living in a, in a world that they could not recognize, they see the decay and the despair, the heartache, the loss all around them. But the priests begin to tell stories in which they are enabled to see more than just what's around them. See, we believe that these first few chapters have multiple sources. In fact, chapter 1, we believe, likely came from a group of priests living in the exile. And chapter 2 came from another source called the Yahwists, which is another tradition. We'll talk about that next week. But the priestly tradition are priests who begin to tell the way things began, but with a purpose. Think augmented reality. Because if you've been doing your homework and you've been reading chapter 1, what have you noticed? You've noticed that there are seven days of creation and each day there's a kind of rhythm, a kind of cadence, a kind of meter and rhyme to it, right? Did you notice that as you're reading through the first chapter you hear, and God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. And God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good, day two. And God said, so there is a repeated rhythm, a deliberate pattern, because the priests are not just telling a story about how things happened. They are writing an order of worship in which exiles will, in the context of worship, repeat this story in a way that sings, in a way that has a certain poetry to it, in a way that moves more than just the ear, but the heart. Because if there is any example of augmented reality, worship is an example of augmented reality. Do you realize that what we do here every Sunday is an exercise in augmented reality? Because it's no secret to you 
what the world outside these walls look like and, and what, it, what it feels like. You know better than anybody else what the brokenness and struggle and tension of this world can bring. So when we gather in worship, we don't come in here to simply describe the way things are. That's not worship. We gather in worship to imagine the way they are intended to be. And imagining the way they are intended to be, we are stoked, we are provoked to leave this place at the end of worship and go fix it. That's called augmented reality. We come in here and we see the world as it is. But more than that, when we, when we hear the scripture being read and when we listen to the song and, and when we imagine the truths that we proclaim, it's as if a filter is layered over on top of what we see every day. And we're empowered to see what we see every day in a brand new way. We call it worship. Augmented reality. And the exiles, hearing this rhythm, and God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good are in worship hearing that in the midst of their reality, which was pain and suffering and heartache and, and, and loss, in the midst of their reality, they are augmented. They are able to hear the good news that God has not forgotten nor abandoned, that the God who once was over the chaos and brought order out of it is still working to do the same. And do you know what that does in the lives of people? Maybe it's the same thing that it does to you and me when we come in here on a given Sunday and, and, and we lift our voices and the organ works. <laughs> Thank God. And, the, and, and we lift our voices and we say things like, um, Oh, Lord, my God, when, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I, I see. I see the stars. Where are they in here? No, it's augmented reality. I see the stars. I hear the, the roaring thunder. Thy power throughout the universe is displayed. Then, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art because of what we've seen in here. And exiles worshiping together, being stoked and provoked in the imagination of faith, grow in hope because they recognize how great God is. So the first layer of this uh, spread before us is to understand what's happening in the text. It's meant to show us a world not as it exists, but as it's meant to exist and as it can exist even now. So specifically, I want us to dig down on two verses. You know, last week we covered two verses. The week before that, uh, not much more. So at this rate... We may make it to the end of uh, these 11 chapters by, um, well, retirement. <laughs> so, these two verses, 26 and 27, the creation of humankind. And I want you to listen and think about the creation of humankind as heard by exiles when we hear these words. And God said, let us make humankind in our image according to to our likeness. There are a few 
parts of this verse that I want to pick apart. Can we just pick it apart for a moment and see where the Spirit kind of guides us in our, in our thinking and, and in our study? The verse begins in a curious way. Have you, have you been as curious as I throughout my life about the plurality of that statement? God, who we believe is one God. There is but one God in the world, in, in all the universe. There is but one. And yet here, let us make humankind in our image. What's with the plural pronouns, right? Well, we believe that there could be a, a, at least three theories as to why plural language is used right there to describe the action of God. I mean, one of them, one of the reasons, one of the theories about why God says, let us make humankind, is it's just kind of a, an exhortation, kind of a statement that you make. You know, it's like when you tell your kids, all right, let's go to bed. Well, you know, you're not going to bed. It's just, let's get this thing going. Come on, let, let's, let's go. That's one theory, a language. Another theory is what's known as the divine council. In ancient Mesopotamia, it was widely known and believed that there was this divine council of 70 deities. And these 70 deities all had particular jobs. In fact, there's evidence of this that emerges in our Bible, in our Hebrew Bible. Do you remember in the book of Job, as Job begins... The opening verses of Job has God turning to one of the members of the divine council, Satan. And Satan, in that place, by the way, has a definite article. It's not Satan with a capital S like it's his first name. It's Ha-Satan, which means the Satan, which translated literally means the accuser. In the divine council, at least according to Job, Ha-Satan, Satan, the, the, the accuser, is the prosecuting attorney has a role to play, and he brings his case against Job. Another place, another member sitting just a few seats down on the rostrum at the committee meeting known as the Divine Council in ancient Mesopotamia was the god Baal, or Baal. You've, you've heard of him, the, the prophets of Baal. So one of the, 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 the realities in the backdrop of these texts is that there was an existing idea of the Divine Council which we see in the Hebrew Bible emerge a development of monotheism in which our God, which originally known as El, El, God, is known as El Elyon, the God of all gods. In other words, there is one above all. So uh, one of the theories, one of the ideas as to why God would say, hey, let us make humankind, one of the theories is that it's a remnant or a little, little residue left over from the divine council. Another theory is that it's the Trinity, that in the beginning, the Father, Son, and Spirit together created the world out of a sense of divine communion with one another. Now, you need to know I believe that to my core. I believe that God is one God expressed in the persons of Father, Son, and Spirit, right? And there is a sense in which, if you really want to ask me about what I think and about how the, the world is created and how you're created and how we come to be, I believe we are made out of that triune God in which God, in God's perfect union with one another, in which God's perfect mutual sharing of community with one another creates a world that is intended to reflect that same mutual sharing and advocacy and love. But the trouble, the challenge to that theory is that the doctrine of Trinity didn't come about until the 4th century A.D. 
And so while that may be absolutely true, those who wrote the scriptures and, and conveyed them down from one generation to the next were about a millennia too early to know about the idea of Trinity in a deliberate way. So where does that leave us? What does it mean then that God says, let us make humankind in our image? Well, we may not know. And I think that may be kind of the point. I think it's even more beautiful when we recognize that God, in all of God's expression, in the wholeness of God, one God with infinite expressions of God's character, pours out into what he has made. In fact, if we pay attention to the rest of the phrase, it not only says God made humankind, but made humankind in his image and according to his likeness. The word humankind there, the Hebrew word for humankind is Adam, Adam, which is a plural word, which means that this God, in all of God's beautiful and infinite multiplicity of character and grace, creates humankind, plural, creates humankind. And it's as if to say for every human there is made upon the planet, there is one unique expression of God's beautiful character and image and likeness. But the text doesn't just say, let us make humankind. It says, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness. So I wonder if for just a moment we can talk about those two words, image and likeness. Image and likeness. They come from two different words. There are two specific Hebrew words that are used there, one for image, one for likeness. The one for image in Hebrew is this, salam. Salam is a word that literally means a kind of concrete sculpture made to look like somebody. A kind of sculpture that's made to, to look some, some, like, like, some, like somebody, right? Salam. And the idea is an emperor who in his empire couldn't be in all places at one time, and so emperors would erect statues that had their image on them all throughout the domain, all throughout the realm, right? So that no matter where he was, everyone in the realm would understand this realm uh, belongs to this emperor. This is a fascinating development in Hebrew scripture. Because don't forget that the Hebrews were the ones who believed to their core. Do you remember the second commandment? You shall have no graven images. They believe to their core that you don't, you don't try to image God because that's impossible. And yet here emerges this beautiful uh, bit of good news. That there is one and only one place on earth where God is allowed to be imaged. And it's in your humanness. That in you, you are the only place where God affirms creating an image in his likeness. Oh, let's not forget that here we are in chapter 1, and we're moving slowly through chapter 1, but we're going to be in chapter 11 pretty soon, like I said, by retirement or something. And in chapter 11, do you remember what happens? Remember what story comes? It's the Tower of Babel. 
right? Where the point is, no, you don't gather in one place, you scatter into the world. Well, keep that in mind as you hear about this God who now is fixing images of himself to be scattered all over the world so that no matter where you look, if you look into the face of another mortal, you see evidence of the presence of God in this place. And there is the good news of what resides in you. I know you may not think of it that way. You, in fact, you may even deal with some self-doubt, maybe even adventures into self-hate. There's no way that you could possibly imagine there's anything good in you. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you, if you hear nothing else, you, you must hear this. It wasn't just a dom who was created with God's own image in him. It's you. In you right now is the holy presence and action of God. Even if you don't recognize it, even if you've never discovered it, even if you don't live out of that amazing depth of resource, even if you don't live out of that love and have come to yield your life to it, in you is something so powerful and eternal and holy and good that you share something with the creator of all this. It's as if it's encoded in you a kind of divine DNA in which at the heart of you, no matter what you do, you can't get rid of the fact that you got God in you. You got it. You didn't put it there. You can't take it away. This is why I think Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians this way. He said, we have this treasure in clay jars. I mean, it's this treasure, and God puts us in, in our clay jars of our lives because we know how fragile and vulnerable the clay jar of our life is, but he chooses to reside within us so that we may know that this thing that we're talking about, the image of God, comes from him and does not originate in us. And if it doesn't originate in us, it can't be broken by us. It's there. This is why Colossians put it this way. This is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Jesus even said, look, this is like the, uh, the pearl of great price where you, you search the world over and when you finally find it, you're willing to sell everything for it and in order to attain it because it's the thing that won't go away. This is why 2 Peter expresses it this way. I love Through this gift, this image of God in you. Through this gift, you are sharers in the divine nature itself. <laughs> what? Have we stopped long enough to just let that kind of soak in? Just drink that in for just a moment. You are sharers in the divine nature itself. I know you don't act like it. Me either. I know you fail at living up to that identity. I know. I do too. There are some days when it is, I am light years away from anything recognizable in me that is divine. But that doesn't change what the Holy Word of God has said, which is you are created in God's divine image. The question is, have you seen it lately? 
Have you lived out of that truth lately? Has it informed how you do life and view life, how you talk to people, how you interpret? But the text not only says that we are created in God's image, which is what we all have. There's nothing anybody can do about that. It also says, however, this is curious, that we're created according to his likeness. There is a difference between image and likeness. The word for likeness in Hebrew is demuth. Demuth doesn't mean like a concrete image that reflects the, 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 the image of a person. Demuth means to be similar in the way of life, to be similar in the way of behaving, to be similar in the way of, of, of being. That's likeness. Now watch this. The more you are aware of the image that is in you, the more you will live the likeness. Likeness is a way of life that emerges out of your awareness of the image that is in you. This is why the rest of that verse, 26, continues this way. Yeah, we've been made in his image and in his likeness. And, and it says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle. It goes on and says, and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. The word there is dominion. Let them have dominion. Watch this. You and I have at times abused that verse, assuming that, well, if we've been given dominion over all the earth, that means we can do whatever we want to to each other and the planet but there is a difference between dominion, which is what we've been given, and domination. Dominion is a word that means servanthood. Dominion is a word, think of a king who assumes that his role is not to be served by all the subjects in his domain, but it's a king who understands his, his role is to serve and protect and provide for all the subjects in his domain. Can you hear and feel the difference? And if humankind is living in the likeness of this God, then humankind will live like this God who pours out of God's self, empties out selflessly, who serves for the care and protection and provision of all that he has made. In other words, when you recognize the image that's in you, you live the likeness that's expected of you. Can I put it another way? We're made to be God-like. At least that's what the psalmist says when Psalm 8 reads this way, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now you have set the glory above the heavens. Uh, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have become a, uh, you founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. But, but then uh, here comes the, the money verse. Watch this. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, all that you have established, what... Are human beings that you are even mindful of them? What are mortals that you would even care for them? Yet, however, although, but you have made them just a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. 
You have given them dominion. You have given them responsibility. You have given them God-like responsibility to love and care and share and provide and protect. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under their feet. All the sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the, the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, you are sovereign. How majestic is your name in all the earth. To live in the likeness of God means that you have recognized what it is that abides in you. And when we recognize that image that has been put in there, we live out of it. And the way we live out of it is how, well, how does your life look? What's your personality? What's your calling? What's your specific mission? Because that is the likeness that you are living when you recognize the image, you live the likeness. And some recognize the image early and they recognize, wow, what a gift. Wow, I can't believe that God would think this highly of me in my low, low estate. And some see it early and in seeing it early, they live out of that grace, that mercy, that compassion. They live out of that image. They live a likeness. But some never see it. Some never recognize it in their own lives, and if they can't recognize the divine, beautiful image in their own lives, they will never recognize it in the lives of others. And I'm here to tell you that every social distinction that you and I erect to help us divide up, every social distinction that you and I erect in order to feel better about being in this group or the other group, they all melt away when we talk about the image of God, about the likeness of God. Because what we're talking about is can you recognize the image of God in every mortal despite if they are white or black or brown, male or female, if they're American or not American, if they are Republican, Democrat, wealthy, poor, educated, uneducated, no social distinction, no social distinction defines the image of God that is in you. Do you know who did this well? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the perfect merger of human and divine. In him, he chose his favorite title. Of all the titles that we give to Christ, his favorite one was Son of Man, which means the representation of all humankind. And in him was this recognition. He knew the image that was deep within him and ordered his life in such a way as to live the likeness in all the relationships that he nurtured and all of his teachings that he proclaimed. Colossians puts it this way. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The question, my friends, my beloved sisters and brothers, can you see the image in you? Because you cannot begin to see the image of God in others until you recognize it in yourself. Well, how do we do that? Through prayer. Through prayer. Through waking each morning and, and saying with everything that is in you, God, I recognize that I will cover up this image that you have established within me. 
Your very character desiring to live out of me, I will cover it up, I will ignore it, and certainly if I ignore it in me, I will ignore it in the person who I disagree with, in the person who has made me angry. I will, I will miss it completely. So show me today how to see the image so I can live the likeness. Show me how to see the image. And can I just give you a heads up, my friends? If you pray that way, be careful. Because God will then begin to show you the image of God, not only in yourself and in the ones you love, but God will begin, oh my, oh, to show you the image of God in the people you despise. I hate it when he does that. I do. I'm just being transparent with you. Because I, I, I would rather affirm God's image is definitely there and certainly here and, oh, clearly there. But at the end of the day, it's probably because I have a lot in common with those particular people. But when God really wants to mess with you, God will begin to reveal the image of his own character in the people you despise. Richard Rohr says that when that happens, he says when, when we can see the image of God where we don't want to see the image of God, then we see with eyes not our own. Augmented reality. The eyes of God. Let's pray. Most glorious God, we recognize that we see through a glass dimly So augment our reality. Show us what our eyes are limited to see. Show us in the heart what the world is intended to look like and show us what our role in it is and show us how to see your image not only in ourselves but in those who are around so that we may truly and authentically learn to live the likeness that you expect from us. In the name of Christ Jesus, the Lord of life, we pray. Amen.